Rumble last week. Quick local stories online at HumboldtLastWeek.com, KimKemp.com, and on the radio on 99.1 KISS FM Mondays. Connect on social media for more local content and giveaways. We're back with our quick local stories. Also, check out Humboldt Last Week Alternative Radio with those new and nostalgia songs all at HumboldtLastWeek.com. Hope you've been good. We're back in action after taking a week off. The following partners make Humboldt Last Week happen. I love these partners. That's Brick and Fire Bistro, casually comfortable and locally inventive cuisine on F Street in Eureka, where people who love food serve the food they love. Enjoy lunches, weekdays, and dinners nightly. They've got a table by the fire waiting for you. That's Brick and Fire in Eureka. Crystal and Bernie's Trinidad Vacation Rental Luxury Accommodations, bordering the ocean with epic views, a hot tub, fine dining a short walk away, and nearby the town of Trinidad. Perfect for that romantic getaway or family staycation. Book at TrinidadCaliforniaRental.com. Bongo Boy Studio, Beth Isbell is recording there. That's local musician Beth Isbell. She's taken advantage of that pro studio sound made possible by our favorite local experts in McKinleyville, Bongo Boy. Check them out at bongoboystudio.com. Eel River Organics. They create artisan extracts from their locally dry-farmed cannabis, single-batch, whole-flower, cannabis-derived terpenes, and always strong. You can find Eel River vape pens and concentrates at local dispensaries in Arcata, Eureka, McKinleyville, and Garberville. Find them on Weed Maps and Instagram at Eel River Organics. The North Coast Journal, the latest edition of the North Coast Journal, is on newsstands now. Pick it up for in-depth reporting, plus reviews, listings, and details you need to plan your week. Keep up with the latest at northcoastjournal.com. Hops and Humble at Runner Park in Fortuna, August 24th. Enjoy beer tasting, live music, games, and other fun community antics, all for a great cause. Proceeds benefit local nonprofits, and this year we're getting gnarly with an 80s theme. That's Hops and Humble. August 24th, tickets at hopsandhumble.com. Reggae on the River, an iconic event in Soham, not happening this year, as you've likely heard. The Mateel, still working to get out of debt, and they in high times canceled the event, citing money problems. One of the pre-cancellation headliners, though, still will perform that weekend of August 3rd and 4th. That's Toots and the Maidles. Toots and the Maidles there. Reggae Legacy is the name of the Reggae on the River replacement event at the Mateel and Redway. Hope it's a good event in early August, and that... It helps the Mateel and nearby businesses. More at KimKemp.com. Thad over at the North Coast Journal was able to sit down with the new prez of Humboldt State. Here's my highlights. HSU's first black president comes from a heritage that includes a freed slave in the South. And after the local NAACP questioned whether HSU should recruit students of color... Tom Jackson seems to be against labeling students in one certain category, students of color, for example, and that at the same time, he seems to be against students labeling the university based on one certain moment. Quote, if the student is good enough to enter a university, then that university has to be good enough to keep them. End quote. Summarily, the military vet views HSU as a local source of pride for students and staff, but also the community. He wants to keep the school connected with the community. He's aiming for more transparency, and he hopes to one day leave HSU in a better place than when he found it. Again, that's in the journal. Humble export Sarah Bareilles with seven Grammy nominations and zero wins. Always an awards bridesmaid, but never a bride, as a Grammy win prediction website put it. But Gold Derby is saying perhaps Sarah's new and more politically leaning record amidst the chaos could change that. 
They pointed to artists like Green Day, the Dixie Chicks, and Childish Gambino for their Grammy successes after getting political, quote, maybe a little chaos will be good for her next year, end quote. Give Sarah a Grammy, damn it. She grew up near us in Reading. Congrats to Megan Rapinoe and the rest of the USA women's soccer team on winning the World Cup over in France. Maybe you saw Megan got the first goal of the championship game off a penalty kick. Daughter and I were holding hands for good luck for her. It was the USA's fourth World Cup victory, and Rapino was the top scorer in the entire tournament. A star from right next to us over in Reading, go Megan Rapino and USA Women's Soccer. Did you see someone tried to plant a redwood tree where the McKinley statue used to be on the Arcata Plaza? As you know, after it was there for over a century, the statue there was recently removed over McKinley's poor decisions related to race. Funny thing is, someone was saying they planted the tree in some soil sitting on top of a layer of concrete and granite. Either way, it looks like we should know more about how they'll use that spot in the middle of the Arcata Plaza this fall. Kind of reminded some of the earlier camp days or the days of Operation Green Sweep back in the day. Looks like the military will be helping the sheriff take on illegal cannabis operations in Humboldt throughout the summer. The National Guard reportedly in on that. And there's more at KimKemp.com. In California in 2016, new laws made it possible for people to dismiss certain cannabis-related convictions so long as they filed the paperwork to do so. But paperwork, right? What about the eligible offenders that maybe didn't know they were eligible or didn't know how to do the paperwork or for whatever reason didn't get around to petitioning to have these cannabis convictions removed? Well, last year, a bill automated that process, and just recently, the state forwarded eligible cases to district attorneys throughout the state for review. Humboldt DA Maggie Fleming tells me 1,145 Humboldt cases are eligible for dismissal. Her office now has until July of next year to review all of those cases. She told me, quote, we'll meet that deadline and further follow the law by giving priority to people who have petitioned for dismissals or anyone in prison. Although no one included in the DOJ data is in prison only for cannabis related crime. Well, there you have it. Humboldt looking to dismiss even more certain cannabis related convictions. We get to go under the sea with Disney. Sure, actress Melissa McCarthy is reportedly in talks to star as Ursula in the live-action version of Little Mermaid, but Twitter wants Humboldt-marinated celebrity chef Guy Fieri to star as the tentacled sea witch. Hey, Guy could offer sea witch sandwiches at his restaurants. That's catchy, right? Ferndale raised Food Network star responded with this on Twitter. We got no troubles. Life is the bubbles under the sea. He handled that well. Apparently, Guy's done some voice acting on the cartoon Phineas and Ferb in the past, so it could happen, right? An elderly rich dude who survived the Holocaust is hoping to get back some family photos. Famous investment banker was here visiting the Redwoods and thinks maybe his briefcase was yoinked from his hotel room at the Carter House in Eureka. Thing had money and some family photos, including one of his brother that died in a concentration camp. Story even made it into the San Francisco Chronicle. Michelle David Weil just wants his photos back and says he won't ask any questions if they're returned. It appeared to be a violent white supremacist group trying to recruit in Humboldt. Flyers were posted in Eureka featuring the typical white pride BS, one poster with an assault rifle. This hate group earned a small social media following. Recent video posted looked like Humboldt Bay fireworks with the caption, The collapse will sound like the 4th of July every day for a while, end quote. Officers were concerned, disgusted, investigating, and then, turns out this group was started by a 16-year-old boy who's multiracial. What? 
EPD said, hey, we don't think there's a violent threat. This kid's family basically dragged him by the ear to the police station, upset and concerned. They're reportedly going to try to set this kid on the right path with a local program. Officers are going to keep an eye on these hateful social media pages. I followed that via KimKemp.com and via the North Coast Journal. You might have heard about this. A local 14-year-old movie director screened his award-winning film recently at the movie theater in Fortuna, even speaking in front of the happy crowd. Flick tackles depression, love, laughter, friendship, and the soaring teen suicide rate. The Adventure of T.P. Man and Flusher is now available on Amazon Prime. Posted a link at HumboldtLastWeek.com. And director Griffin Locke is the grandson of T-Great Rizzoli, former owner of the Tip Top Strip Club and former Eureka Mayor candidate. Griffin is now shooting his next movie right here in Humboldt, teen doing big things. Again, that Amazon Prime link to the latest movie is at HumboldtLastWeek.com. Here's the Humboldt Last Week, Humboldt Attraction of the Week. How about Tall Trees Grove? It's in Redwood National and State Park. This is one with a little bit of extra work, but it's worth it. First, you got to get a free permit from a visitor's center. Prairie Creek and Coachella are nearby. That gets us a parking pass and gate combo. And by the way, they hardly ever run out of permits. So once you get a permit, you go up 101 past Oric, take a right on Bald Hills Road, cruise for about seven miles, look for Tall Trees Access Road, unlock the gate, then cruise for another six or so miles to the trailhead. Takes a little bit to get out there. It's definitely not the easiest trail, about four miles long, steep at times, but you can check out old growth redwoods, dense ferns, nice views, a creek, camping along the creek with the right permit, no traffic noise and since it's inland it's usually sunnier and warmer and again because you need a permit it adds this sort of secret layer vibe out there tall trees grove is really popular because a libby tree once thought to be the world's tallest living tree other taller trees have been found but libby is the only former tallest tree that's location isn't a secret cool right so that's tall trees grove the humble last week humble attraction of the week Here's some stuff to check out this week. Folklife Festival shenanigans in Blue Lake. Live music at Pearson Park in McKinleyville Thursday evening. Journey tribute band on the Madiket Plaza in Old Town Eureka Thursday evening. Live theater, check out Matilda at the Arkley in Eureka starting Friday evening. Music and festiveness in Old Town Eureka Friday evening. That's the Friday Night Market. Punk show at Rampart in Arcata Friday evening. Free screening of the newer animated Superman movie in Sequoia Park Saturday evening. An adults-only roller skating night at the Eureka Muni, Saturday evening. And live music at the Humboldt Botanical Garden, the afternoon of Sunday the 21st. Cool. All right, so I've got a big, long interview coming up. Before I play it, I'd like to thank our partners that make Humboldt last week possible. That's Hobson Humboldt and Fortuna, August 24th. Brick and Fire Lunch and Dinner in Eureka. TrinidadCaliforniaRental.com with those ocean views. Bongo Boy Recording Studio in McKinleyville. Eel River Organics Cannabis Extracts available all over Humboldt and the North Coast Journal. Links to all of them at HumboldtLastWeek.com. Well, battling the opioid epidemic is good, but is the fight going too far when it comes to a local doctor? Connie Bash is accused of overprescribing opioids in Arcata, but she has an overwhelming amount of community support while she's battling this Goliath, the state medical board, fighting to keep her license. Thanks for your time, Dr. Bash. Uh, You're welcome. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Hey, my pleasure. So you signed some of our emails with Connie. Is it okay if I call you Connie? Absolutely. Yeah, that's my name. Okay, great. So, I mean, let's get to the meat of this. Basically, the medical board's complaint against you surrounds five Humboldt patients that were taking high doses of opioids and anti-anxiety meds. And I'm going to quote the Pain News Network. They said, 
Although she'd tapered them down to lower doses, the complaint alleges the amounts are still excessive and the combination of drugs places the patients at risk of overdose and death, end quote. So, I mean, what led to the medical board singling you out in this complaint? Well, I guess the first thing is I haven't been singled out. They are doing this to hundreds of doctors up and down the state. Um, And it's part of a general push, which I'm going to assume is being done in good faith, Um, to try to limit opioid prescriptions in our state. Um, And, you know, they've used different excuses to get into different offices to investigate. Right now, there is a CURES database. So there's a big database of who's receiving controlled substances. And you can search it and see who's prescribing them. So one of the projects that they're doing is called the Death Certificate Project, where they're investigating people who had patients die between uh, 2012 and 2014. They're going back to the doctors who prescribed pain meds that those patients were on and then investigating their current practices, um, looking at the patients who are still receiving controlled substances there. I didn't have a death from my practice. Um, The investigation started um, with an anonymous complaint, and the complaint claimed that I was prescribing for somebody who was selling their medications and that I knew about that. Um, And that actually, the the investigation found that was not true. I don't prescribe to people who are diverting. That's actually a reason that people get kicked out of my practice if I have a suspicion that that's going on. Um, But once they're in, they use the Cures database and they they pick your most problematic patients, the, the ones who are on the highest doses or who are on a problematic combination, and then they request the charts for those particular patients. And, you know, one of the things that's happened is since the 2014 guidelines from the medical board, many doctors are afraid to care for people with chronic pain. So, you know, if you're a patient in Humboldt and you're trying to get a new doctor, first of all, a lot of practices are just closed, period. But those that are accepting new patients, most of them, if you tell them, if they ask, what do you need to be seen for, and you mention chronic pain, they say, we're not taking pain patients. So what's happened is doctors have been afraid to prescribe those of us who still will prescribe for patients um, have gathered the refugees. Uh, the people who've been cut off or rapidly tapered by other doctors tend to find the few remaining doctors who will prescribe for them. And ironically, we are not the ones who started these patients on the really high doses. A lot of those folks have left town. So, you know, in the early 2000s, we were all told to treat pain more aggressively. People were placed on very high doses of meds. Then doctors were told in 2014, oops, that was wrong. Um, Doctors got afraid, so they started cutting people down drastically. And a few of us picked up those refugees. Um, And I did in particular because I've been treating chronic pain with healing groups since 2005. So when a new patient with pain calls our practice, we say, we think we can help you. Um, And so we've accepted those patients. So I, I look like a high prescriber. It's not because I'm a pill mill. Right. Yeah. I mean, if this all stems from an anonymous complaint, that's interesting that that can all cause this. It's kind of a uh, an avalanche, so to speak, that, you know, materialized from a snowball. Now, on the other hand, yeah, you're right. The medical board does have a tough task. I saw that Washington Post piece just back in April, you know, about some bad doctors. You know, there's some bad apples out there in seven states. They were arrested for operating pill mills and cash. So this stuff is happening. Um, but at the same time, it's like, are they going too far here? So, and you said none of these five patients, uh, passed away. Um, you know, were they harmed under your care in any way? Did they overdose? 
No, no, I have, there have been no overdoses among those patients. They were stable. I mean, they're on ridiculously high doses, but they had been for years from other prescribers and had been stable. Um, and they're all on less now. One of them, I, you know, she did go up. She was, um, her pain was not managed, and she's had multiple orthopedic surgeries. So her doses went up, but they're back down again now. You know, I, I think the uh, the only harm that I see to these patients is that during the middle of this investigation, probably about a year into it, I was feeling so intimidated that I actually enforced a narcotic contract in a way that is against my own conscience and forced her to go through withdrawal one weekend when she ran out of meds early. Um, and I gave her some medicines to try to make that safer. So I replaced her usual medicines with some other things to try to not have it be as awful as it might have been, but she still was... It was torture. Um, I talked to her and her daughter probably eight times that weekend. She wound up in the ER. It's one of the worst things I've ever done as a doctor, and I did it directly because I was intimidated. So in terms of harm, that was the harm that happened, uh, was me you know, backing down from my principles because of the pressure. What alternative medicines did you give her that weekend? Um, I, she was on uh, lorazepam, and it's really dangerous to withdraw from benzodiazepines. You can die. So I gave her some clonazepam to cover. Um, it's actually listed in the state's accusation online. Um, and then I used buprenorphine, which is a medicine that's used for heroin addicts, um, to help with mitigating withdrawal. It, it didn't work for her. Um, I, I would never have normally stopped her in that way. I know better. Um, and, you know, I've been thinking about the Milgram experiment, which is that psychological experiment where an authority figure told a volunteer to shock somebody else as part of a supposedly an educational um, trial to, like, help somebody learn, memorize a list of words. Um, they were supposed to shock the learner each time they made an error. And the authority figure kept telling them to turn up the voltage. And this was done in the 60s at Yale. They found that about 60% of people would turn up the voltage to a potentially lethal level in order to shock the learner to help for this clinical trial simply because an authority figure told them to do it. And, and they did it because they were trying to figure out why did Eichmann and Heidemann and all these people go along with Hitler in his plan? And, and it's scary because it turns out humans do what authority figures say. I feel worried that the, the medical profession in general is making this kind of an error that I think many of us are seeing that this is harmful, that the new policies are harmful, but are afraid to speak up. We are so intimidated by authority. Well, sure. And what they're focused on is the numbers. And you had referred to this kind of as an Excel spreadsheet that the medical board wants you to uh, practice medicine by a spreadsheet. And we are looking at these numbers, though, and they seem high, you know, uh, more from the pain news network here. It says she tapered patients to lower doses, but some remained on opioid doses as high as what, 664 MME, which is, you know, well above the CDC's guidelines, which is a recommended ceiling of 90. So 664 instead of 90, that sounds like a lot. Uh, you know, so in layman's terms, like how many pills a day is that? I don't know what that means. Well, the, the pills are strong, so it's not that many pills per day. But I could just say in terms of Vicodin, because I think most people who've had wisdom teeth out or broken something are familiar with what a Vicodin is like. So, so one of my patients came to me on 1,440 milligrams of morphine equivalent, and that's the equivalent of about 288 Vicodin per day. 
And he'd been treated at that dose since about 2010 when I started seeing him, and I, I want to say it was 2014, 2015. So, yeah, it's a lot. How did how did he get up that high? <laughs> uh, gradually over about two decades. Um, one of the things I want to say about this is that there's a difference between when you're starting people on these meds and when they're already on these meds. So the current guidelines suggest if you're starting a new chronic pain patient on opioids, don't go up above 90. You know, taper them up maybe that high, but then if that's not working, don't keep going up. Because one of the things that happens with opioids is people develop tolerance. So whatever dose you're taking stops working, and I think many people notice that within a week or two. These pills seemed great at the beginning, but now they're not doing that much for me. We historically, in the early 2000s and late 90s, we were raising people, okay, your tolerance is not working, let's go up to um, what you need to control your pain. And we were told there was no ceiling at that time. Turns out that was wrong, um, that keeping continuing to go up, you start getting into some very bizarre side effects. Like, for instance, the meds themselves can cause pain. They call it hyperalgesia. Um, they can start suppressing your pituitary glands, so there's worse osteoporosis. People have low hormone levels. I mean, they start messing with you in all kinds of ways. So it's really good advice to not go up above 90. The problem for me is these folks who come in who are literally on more than 1,000 milligrams of morphine a day, and they've been on that for years. Their brains have changed. Their spinal cords have changed. And it takes a lot of time for healing to occur. And the other thing that's happened is, for many of them, that was the only thing they were doing for pain. They weren't in an exercise program. Their nutrition has suffered. They're, you know, in many ways, their bodies are not ready to, um, to heal or to be rid of these medicines. And what we're seeing is that if you force these patients to taper down rapidly to that 90 milligram cap, it, you don't get a do-over. It's not like, oh, oops, that was too high of a dose. Let's just put you on the right dose. No, your body has been changed, and the process of tapering actually is causing harm. Now, does tapering too fast or, you know, cutting use cold turkey, which obviously you should not do, that increases suicide and overdose deaths? Yeah, so um, there are multiple harms, um, but one of them is suicide. And, and one of the scary things is that this, this uh, experiment is being done on the whole U.S. population without anybody tracking the results. So, for instance, we know we have good data between 2010 and 2014 that the percentage of patients who completed suicides who suffered from chronic pain had gone up. So that of the suicides they were seeing, more of them were pain patients. We don't know after 2014. Those statistics have not been gathered. We do know that suicide overall is going up. Um, the Commonwealth Fund has that data, and you can see it trending. We do know that there are a lot of anecdotes of pain patients who were tapered off their medicines and committed suicide. There's a, a doctor in North Carolina, his whole blog is pictures and stories of patients who took their own lives because of despair, because their pain was not managed. Um, and I personally have had four suicides in my practice without forced tapers, just people who were dealing with chronic pain, who decided it wasn't worth it anymore, that their quality of life was gone. So for me, that is a very real risk. That, so that's one possibility, is that people just give up. Oh my gosh, my pain's not managed. Life isn't worth living. Let's end it. A second possibility is that your doctor cuts off your pain medicines, pain becomes unmanageable, or withdrawal becomes unmanageable, or something like that. 
and people find a different source of pain medicine. My doctor won't give me the medicine. Maybe my friend will sell me some pills. Maybe I can find some uh, heroin. I actually had a, a workers' comp patient who was a middle-class guy, no history of substance abuse, who was telling me that he'd been pricing heroin, and it turned out it was really, really affordable, <laughs> which is totally terrifying. And I've seen, you know, I've, I plotted on my website, I plotted two pieces of data from the Centers for Disease Control. One is a lovely graph that they made of three waves of overdose deaths from opioids. And then on top of that, I plotted the decrease in prescription numbers because around 2010, 2012, doctors realized that the policy of, you know, there is no ceiling and keep prescribing more was a bad policy. So we started limiting prescriptions. And you can see that as the prescription rate has gone down, the overdose and death rate has gone up. And one of the worst problems is that fentanyl hit us around 2013-ish. Um, so fentanyl is in the street drugs, including things that look like Percocet pills. I was at a recent conference, and they showed us a picture of a pill that looked like a, a Percocet that you would get from the pharmacy, but when it was analyzed, it actually had fentanyl in it. Um, and one of my patients recently told me that's why Prince died, was uh, because of a pill that actually turned out to have fentanyl. So what's happened is, as you lose your safe, predictable dose from your doctor, for some patients, they are going to seek another source, and that other source is not safe. And then the third major harm is loss of function, that there are people who were functional. I do have patients who take regular pain medication and who work their jobs and who are not altered. They're not dopey. They're not misusing their pain medicine. They've developed tolerance to it, and it allows them to work and be functional individuals. Or if they're disabled, it allows them to be independent, do their own grocery shopping, take care of themselves. Many of those patients are no longer able to care for themselves. Many of them have not been able to continue working. And so that's another huge uh, harm of the forced papers and people who had been stable for years. So all of this aside, you know, I would imagine you've had some patients come through your door that aren't necessarily looking to get better, right? That are oh, absolutely. just yeah. looking to get high. What are the signs? You know, how do you determine if a patient is just trying to get high? Well, I mean, I think one thing is, uh, is their ability to follow through on other instructions. So for me, I'm usually asking people to, you know, go see a consultant, try physical therapy, um, take this and report back to me. And so the po folks who aren't interested in doing that, that's a, a quick tell. The other thing is that I ask people to come to our healing group. So we have a, a group meeting about every two weeks, um, and we do, you know, meditation and cognitive therapy and other things in the group. And um, if somebody's over-medicated, they cannot sit in a semi-dark room with me lecturing and with us meditating without it being very obvious that they're over-medicated. Um, so that's another piece. Uh, the people who just, you know, shine on their appointments and don't show up, um, sometimes we'll get a report from a family member. When I'm worried about people, I actually usually will try to involve their spouse or their daughter or other family members uh, to give me feedback about how they're they're looking. Um, we also do random urine testing. So if, if the medicine I'm prescribing for you is not in your urine, that's a problem because you might be selling your pills. And if anything else is in your urine, and in our area that's primarily methamphetamine, I don't feel safe prescribing for you, and that's going to be another reason to stop. So, you know, there are different ways. I have discharged a number of patients, and it's usually, you know, lying to me about uh, various things, <laughs> um, running out of meds way early. So, you know, many of my patients don't <laughs> follow through exactly on their medication instructions. You know, I just think about the person who, like, 
saves a few amoxicillin from their last infection so that the next time they get sick, they can start it right away. Um, I have people who are not following instructions with every kind of medicine, blood pressure medicine, antibiotics. So there are some minor problems with pain medicines where people will wake up in the middle of the night desperate and take an extra pill or two. Running out a couple days early is usually that, and it's rarely very dangerous. But I've had people who ran out of their pain medicine in like half the time uh, that was prescribed, and that is dangerous. I don't know what they're doing, and those are the people who could overdose. And those, again, they're the people who I cannot prescribe safely for. Right. Have you seen heavily addicted patients, uh, you know, people who maybe society wrote off as lost causes, get to a point to where they're off completely? Oh, Have you absolutely. ever seen that? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, the first thing I want to say is addicted and dependent is two different things. Right. Yeah, I should have made that distinction. Yeah, about 8% of chronic pain patients who are treated with opioids will develop addiction, which is a bunch of really dysfunctional behaviors where people, you know, like I said, take their medicines in half the time or take them to get high or do things like that. But I have other patients who are dependent on extremely high doses. Um, and many of them <clears throat> I've been able to help get off. I mean, like I said, I've been doing this since 2005. So, you know, I have one particular patient who features in many of the lectures when I teach on this subject. I struggled with her, and she struggled too. She couldn't sit down in an office visit. She was so uncomfortable, she would always stand and lean on, an office, on one of my exam tables um, because she could not sit. Um, she was on 240 milligrams of oxycodone, and I did prescribe that. I was responsible for that prescription back in 2005 and <clears throat> had been for years. And I had her come to our healing groups, and she actually was complaining about it. Like, I've tried meditation. I've tried this and that. She came to the group. She learned more information about the harms of medicines, about other reasons why she might be in pain. She realized that one of the mind-body medicines mechanisms that we were talking about, that it, it's a long story, but it has to do with repressed rage. She realized that that fit her. And she decided to get off her meds, and she got off within two months. And then she went back to grad school, and she got off disability, and she's been working. I mean, I have I, I had a large series of patients like that who had been on very high doses of medications and who got off them and got their lives back. And that's why I do healing groups. That's why I've been treating chronic pain patients. I just think that it's not always on my time frame that I ha the patient needs to be on board. Once she decided, it was easy to taper her. Until she decided, we had constant power struggles and it was very difficult. And so this is the whole thing. And, you know, the Centers for Disease Control has come out this year and said they did not intend their guidelines to be applied to legacy pain patients. Their guidelines were intended for initial treatment. And that with legacy patients, you need to establish a therapeutic alliance and you need to work with a patient in a patient-centered taper that the the way that I've been practicing is actually what the experts are saying. It's just frustrating because the California standard hasn't quite caught up with what they've realized at the national level, that this tapering, forcing tapers, is not a constructive intervention. Well, the FDA recently addressed this. They said, quote, no standard opioid tapering schedule exists that is suitable for all patients, end quote. That's correct, yeah. It, it should be individualized, and I honestly think that you have to persuade people to do it, and then they do well. And, and this is the crazy thing, that when you force somebody to taper, often their pain goes up and they become non-functional. When somebody is on board and decides they want to taper, it goes well. The vast majority of them, their pain scores don't go up. Some of them do. 
Some of them do, and then we back up and we put them back on their previous meds so that they can function. But for the vast majority of them, because of that hyperalgesia and for other reasons, if we taper slowly enough, they do great. Um, and, you know, that patient who was on 1440, he's essentially off at this point. It took four years. It took two years to get him surgery because we live in Humboldt. Um, and then it took another couple years for him to taper down from 1440 to 300. And then the last part went quickly. And I think, you know, for different patients, it's a different story. And so what is frustrating to me is that the medical board wants to impose a schedule that has never been studied in outpatients, that this, this taper schedule, which is commonly prescribed of 10% per interval, has been studied in inpatient programs like at Stanford. And if I could send all my patients there for inpatient rehab, I would do it in a hot second. But it's not covered for most insurances. It's not covered for most situations. And doing it as an outpatient, as I said, free-range humans do things like get some extra pills from a friend or buy them somewhere else or give up and don't communicate with us, but give up and lose hope and, and take their lives. So, yeah, it's a complex situation and it can't be solved with a, with a simple-minded intervention. So you have, what, 1,500 patients? I think I have about 1,400 who are active. There are 1,600 people that I've seen since I moved back in 2013. Wow. And the state, uh, they've allowed you to practice medicine for almost two years since launching this investigation, by the way, which is, you know, still in the process. So, I mean, what message do you feel that sends? Well, I think, I mean, I think the main message it sends is that they're busy doing a bunch of these investigations. Um, sure. because, you know, since this has all happened, I've been hearing from other doctors who are having similar situations. Um, I think the other thing it says is that they must not think I'm that dangerous because <laughs> they've let me continue to do this. Right. Yeah. I mean, they can't think you pose an immediate threat or anything. Right. Right. Yeah. So is it costly to defend yourself in this case? Have you lawyered up essentially? Right. So I do have a lawyer. My malpractice uh, insurance covers the first $50,000 of an administrative matter. Um, and most administrative matters are things like doctors who are impaired, doctors who are drinking too much, um, doctors who have a history of crossing sexual boundaries with patients, um, that sort of thing. And 50000 is plenty to cover that. It will not cover a hearing. If I actually carry this to hearing, um, my lawyer is telling me that that's going to run about $150,000 to pay an expert witness to come up and um, for all of the other various costs that are associated with that. That's That's a lot. Well, it is, you know, um, the average family physician in the U.S. makes 225000 a year, so that wouldn't be that big of a deal. But I work in Humboldt. I see a lot of Medi-Cal and Medicare patients. I see a lot of covered California patients with high deductibles, and they don't always pay me. Um, and I, so my personal income from my medical practice last year was about 45000 um, and that's working about 100 hours a week. Um, so for me, you know, I'm 55. Uh, coming up with another 100000 to defend my license is ridiculous. I would be better off to get a job at Subway and drive Uber. I would make as much as I made <laughs> this year, and I would be way less stressed and get more sleep. So, um, so yeah, it's a problem. And, and, you know, what's happened is that the majority of physicians that I'm aware of who've received this sort of a letter from the medical board 
have just retired. They just surrendered their license and got out of medicine, including a couple of our docs in Fortuna. So, I mean, with your 1,400 patients, you know, what are their options if you lose your license? I'm, I'm sure that the scene in Arcata uh, would be somewhat depleted if you were to go. Um, right. Nobody up here is taking new patients because uh, we've been turning away new patients for years. We get calls every single day asking us to accept new patients. So as far as I know, the only clinic in, in the area that's accepting new patients is the open door in Fortuna um, and a number of patients because we put out a letter at the beginning of this uh, you know, saying this is happening, you might have to scramble. So a number of our patients have signed records releases to have their records go down there. Uh, but yeah, I don't think that their capacity is going to be 1,400 patients. And the other thing I'm going to say is my 1,400 are not the average 1,400. I take care of a lot of elderly people with heart failure and diabetes and uh, multiple medical problems, lymphoma, just complex patients. Yeah, yeah, those aren't all pain patients for sure. They're not all pain patients, but they're they are the majority of them are medically complex, and it's going to be a problem for the community clinics to absorb patients like that. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so less of the meat of this, the medical board, they also took issue with your uh, medical records. What's, yeah. the, what's the deal with that? Well, there's a couple of things. One is that our electronic health record is a database. So I'm looking at multiple different fields. On my screen, I can see you know five different boxes all at once, and I correlate them with each other. When you try to print that on paper, it doesn't always come out very neatly. Um, so that was one problem is that they, it was difficult to track on paper the order in which things happened. The messages were all in one giant section, completely separate from the progress notes. So if something happened between a visit um, where there were you know, multiple phone calls from somebody or I was exchanging messages with them on our electronic portal, the reviewer would just look from one note to the next and they wouldn't realize that we'd communicated four times in between those two visits. The second thing is that I chart in an, uh, in an idiosyncratic way. So I started using an electronic record in 2001 and I put my plan in the recommendation section of the chart. And the reason I do that is because I print that when the patient leaves the office. So when they leave the office, they have a document that has this is what we discussed today. You're going to try this. You're going to adjust that. You're going to, you know, I referred you to this person. So all of that is there for them, as well as their past medical history and their medications. And I keep a running tally of their ongoing lab uh, results and imaging. So when they leave the office, they have a document that is four to six pages, pages long and then has all of that data. A number of patients have told me it's really helpful because they save them for years because I have specific recommendations and so if a problem recurs, they go back to their old one. If they show it to an ER doc, the doctor knows, oh, okay, these are their diagnoses, these are their medications, it, it improves care. Uh, the problem is that if you're looking in the assessment section of my chart for my plans, it's not there. It's on the recommendation section. And if I could have just had a, like a five-minute conversation with the reviewer before she looked at the records, I think I could have saved her some heartache. But that was a big part of the problem was that they were looking in the wrong section of the chart for the material. Um, so they couldn't tell what was happening on a particular day. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing I'll say is that for most doctors using an electronic health record, um, our records are not ideal. We are trying to balance looking at this computer screen and actually having a conversation with a human. And so my record keeping is, you know, uh, 
every prescription that I've ever prescribed is in there because I prescribe electronically. Uh, all of the records are there, all the information is there, but I haven't always uh, explained why I was doing something. So for instance, if I add a new medication for sleep, I just know, of course I added that for sleep, that's what I use that for. And I didn't necessarily put in a paragraph explaining why I was picking that particular medicine and not a different one, because I know what I'm thinking. Um, and, you know, I, uh, in, in retrospect, if I were going to do anything different, it would have been charting in that manner to explain every decision. Although, honestly, I don't know that I could actually see patients and do that. Um, and I think it's, it's you know, I, it's hard to find the balance between the paperwork and the actual care. So, I mean, it sounds like you have uh, a great case that you're going to be bringing this forward, information about the uh, tapering, about overprescribing, about your paperwork. Um, what happens next for you regarding this complaint? Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate that you think it sounds like a great case. I don't think they care at all with what my opinion is about tapering or even the fact that they're expert papers. What my lawyer is telling me is that Giving them, you know, there's a published paper from like 120 pain experts calling for an urgent action on forced tapering. There's the CDC walk back of their guidelines. My lawyer is telling me that they don't care. Um, they don't care about any of that. Um, that they're holding me to a standard of care defined by their expert, uh, who I can't talk to. And, I, you know, I don't know who she is. She's probably a good doctor, but maybe not so versed in this situation. Um, so what's going to happen is... We're putting together all of this information. We're giving it to a deputy attorney general. And so not only is she not a medical expert, she's a legal expert. And I'm asking her to look at my medical argument. And what I'm hoping is that she will either allow me to speak to a doctor or a panel of doctors. Um, I'm told that that's not possible in the legal situation. Or that she will offer some sort of an alternative to revocation of my license. And what they tell me is that I could potentially be on probation or I could potentially um, have a letter of reprimand um, criticizing my care but not taking my license. I'm hoping that that's going to be the outcome. What kind of timetable have your lawyers given you? Do they know? Um, the discovery closes in about a week and a half. And after that, uh, my lawyer will be talking to the deputy attorney general. And I don't know how long that process will be. Um, and eventually, uh, there may be a hearing, but I, you know, I, again, as I said, I don't know about the finances involved in that. Um, so that's going to be some soul searching for me whether to carry it all the way through. I think I'm right. Um, but I also have to think about my own kid and my own life. And, um, so hopefully, uh, hopefully it won't come to that. Right. Well, please do keep us in the loop about what happens next because we're very fascinated about this. Um, is there anything else you'd like to mention, Connie? Um, I guess so. Why, why am I even talking to you? This is an ongoing legal matter. Um, I want to <laughs> say that I am concerned about the war on drugs in general. As a medical practitioner, I feel like the war on drugs is a failed model and that not only for my pain patients, but also for the addicted patients that I care for, that the more we stigmatize and shame and humiliate these people, who really, there but for the grace of God go we, the more we take that punitive tone, the worse those patients do. 
that when pain patients are afraid, they are less able to taper. And I've noticed that since this all started, my patients who were tapering successfully are having trouble. Um, and for my addicts, I've had somebody recently who was humiliated intentionally by a pharmacist in our city to the point where somebody behind him in line said, you can't be doing that to him. That's a HIPAA violation. We have taken this tone that is so horrendous. And, and what I'm finding is that, you know, in, in Portugal, for instance, they decriminalized all drugs. And what they found is that they have a 50% drop in the overdoses, that people don't use more when you make things legal. They actually, when, when they're not shamed and humiliated and when there's more support provided, we could solve this problem in a different way. We could solve it in a compassionate way. And I just worry about the soul of our country because I feel in so many ways we've lost compassion. And even if you're not compassionate, I just want you to look at the pragmatics. How much is this costing us? And is there a cheaper way to do it? Is me forcing a taper on my elderly patient who's on ridiculously high doses of opioids, does her screaming for a weekend save a young addict from getting hooked on pills? Let's think about what we're doing, why we're doing it, and try to do it in some kind of compassionate and humanistic way. So that's why I'm speaking out publicly because, you know, one of the other doctors who's going through this said, well, I realized they were going to either stab me in a back alley or I was going to make them do it on Main Street. And I feel like, you know, the point needs to be made, whatever happens to my license, the point needs to be made that what we're doing is not working and it's not kind. Dr. Connie Bash of the Full Circle Center for Integrative Medicine. Thank you so much. Um, hey, I wanted to also recommend anybody listening that wants to know more. Connie has a lot of good information about all the things that she's talking about at fullcirclemed.org. And hey, Dr. Connie Bash, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks a lot. And I'm sorry that I did go over time. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's fine. This is, a, <laughs> this is a program that has no time constraints. So we're going to play okay. everything for you. Well, thank you. Hey, no problem. Please support Humboldt last week by supporting our partners. That's Hops and Humble August 24th, Brick and Fire Lunch and Dinner in Eureka, Trinidad California Rental.com with those ocean views, Bongo Boy Recording Studio in McKinleyville, Eel River Organics Cannabis Extracts available all over Humboldt and the North Coast Journal. Links to all of them at HumboldtLastWeek.com. My name is Miles Cochran. Humboldt is amazing. Thank you so much to the following awesome entities for sharing Humboldt last week with our community. That's Kim Kemp and Redheaded Black Belt, the North Coast Journal, and 991 Kiss FM Mondays. Hope you have a great week and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Humboldt last week.